Amen. Our reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9 and extending to verse 10. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we rejoice in the worship of your people already this morning, hearing the beautiful voices, seeing majestic hymns, and your word instructing us from 1 Peter 4 and from 1 Corinthians 13. We're, our hearts are full as we come into your presence now to hear you instruct directly to us, to hear you guide us into what it means to be the family of God what it means to live as a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we would ask right now that you would simply free our hearts from any and all distractions and that you would have us stayed upon this word, enraptured as we may be, absorbed into it through the power of the Holy Spirit, feeding upon it by faith, finding that it nourishes our minds and our hearts and invigorates our will to actually become the people that you've called us to be. Father, in praying this way, I am praying for a miracle of your Spirit to come and illumine this Word so that it might be inescapable and powerful to change in the life of all who are here. Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. Come and use your Word and accomplish all that you intend. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wanted, before we jump into this passage this morning, to simply encourage you, immediately following the service this morning, to pick up our summer devotional. You'll actually find it in the back of the room through those back doors, or you'll find it to my left, to your right, through these doors as you exit. Our summer devotional entitled Life in the Family of God is patterned after our sermon series here in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. The goal and the reading of Scripture that we'll do as a congregation over the summer is to follow the themes that we'll be exploring together on Sunday mornings right here in the sanctuary to carry them with us Monday through Friday in our reading of Scripture. You'll also find several worship services, one for every day of the week, prayer services that you could use with your roommates or with your family um, in order to take, as it were, worship home um, and to live it throughout the week and to continue to nourish yourself on the instruction of God's Word that He's given to us on Sunday. You'll also find in there some articles, resources on a variety of themes that we're going to discuss over the course of the summer together, like serving one another, loving our enemies, showing generous hospitality, and many other topics that are going to be addressed about what life in the family of God really should look like. And so we commend that free resource to you. Just grab it on the way out, grab two, grab three. 
for your family to be able to use and put it to good use during the week as together we get saturated in the Word of God and prepared each week to hear from Him. Now, I'm excited about where the Lord's going to take us in this series, Life in the Family of God from Romans chapter 12, because it's, getting, it's giving us a little opportunity as a congregation to take a deep breath as we enter into the summer together. This is the first Sunday of June. Now the official beginning of summer is underway. The sky is bright, the hot the heat is hotter than any of us can ever imagine. The pools are finally open. Schools are out. It's time for many of us to rest and to relax. But what we want to do as a congregation is to begin to meditate, to slow down, not taking large swaths of material, which we've been doing through our first study in 2018 through the 11 chapters of Genesis. We're going to now take 13 verses over the course of nine weeks. We're slowing it way down. I want to encourage you as we approach this passage, this is a great time in June and July to commit to memory the passage that we're going to study together. Romans chapter 12, 9 to 21. Sounds insurmountable right now as you're sitting here on Sunday morning, but it's essentially a verse a week. And in your devotional guide, you'll find that we've broken it out for you in memorization so that you, as you hear the word proclaimed on Sundays, you can be working it into your heart, just kneading it as you'd knead a, a lump of dough and getting the yeast into it. Knead the word into your heart so that it becomes a part of you over the course of the summer. And it'd be beautiful to say that we have memorized this as a congregation going for, forward in June and July mainly because I think this is one of the richest passages that the Bible gives us on what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live life in the family of God together. We might look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We might look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. But I don't think any of them really quite compare to the many simple but powerful and challenging commands that Paul gives us right here in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. Now, I love the book of Romans. You might expect that from a Presbyterian pastor. We love the book of Romans. It's been described as the book that is the Mount Everest of the Bible. If the Bible is a mountain range, then the book of Romans is the Mount Everest. It is the sweetest, most detailed treatment of the doctrines of salvation that you'll find anywhere in the Bible, which I believe is one of the reasons that this book has had a life-transforming impact upon so many Christians throughout church history. And I think of St. Augustine, a man who was given over to dissipation and debauchery and sexual promiscuity, running every way but to the Lord, when he opened up Romans chapter 13 and read verses 13 to 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies or in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He read those challenging verses from Romans 13, just one chapter over from the one we're going to be in. Interestingly, they're just primarily commands. He read those commands, which we're going to primarily be focusing on in Romans chapter 12. And here's what he had to say about them later in Confessions. I needed no wish to read any further. For it was at that moment my heart was filled with the light of the confidence of His grace and all the shadows of my doubt were swept away. 
the Lord used Romans, this glorious book, and the commands of the book of Romans to draw the greatest early church theologian to himself. Augustine became the church's theologian in the third century and gave shape to the church leading all the way up to the Reformation. In fact, many would argue the next greatest work of the Lord in church history at the Reformation was largely a recovery of the doctrines of salvation through Augustine, which Martin Luther discovered. And Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. He was actually studying in the order of Augustine. And not surprisingly, you know what book of the Bible led him to come to saving knowledge of the Lord? Romans. He was reading Romans 1.17. He had been eaten up with concern about the righteousness of God. He didn't know how to be righteous. He was striving to be righteous. He wanted to make himself right with the works of the law. And he found himself, as we often find, the more we try to do well, it seems like the worst we get. And that was the case with Luther as he was exercising a quote-unquote righteousness with the power of the flesh rather than the power of the spirit. And then he came to Romans 1.17. And Romans 1.17 says, the righteous shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, Luther began to realize like salvation is by faith. I trust in Christ. It's given to me as a gift. It's not something I can accomplish or perform. I have to receive it, and then I have to rest upon it, and in that alone am I saved. And here's what Luther said. I felt reborn in that moment, having gone through the open doors of the paradise, the whole of Scripture took on to me a new meaning. This passage of Paul became, as it were, a gateway to heaven. This book of Romans has power. It's been used by God throughout church history to turn the lives of people upside down, which is to say, turning them right side up. In this glorious book, as you read through it, you will find some of the loftiest of ideas. You'll see some of the richest vocabulary. It is a literary masterpiece. The precision of argument cannot be assailed anywhere you'd find in biblical literature, maybe even literature outside the Bible. But it's not just its vocabulary or its ideas or its precision of argument. As great as all of that is, the Lord uses the forms as a way to penetrate our heart. It's the content of this book that's changing lives. It's the message of this book. It is, as one Puritan put it, the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. Thus the book of Romans. Now in many ways, the first 11 chapters, which I'm not preaching this morning, and you'll be grateful for that. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is an unfolding of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us in the gospel. It's what it is. Paul begins in, in, in Romans 1 talking about our sin. He carries us through in Romans 2 and 3 talking about our need for grace. In Romans 5, he begins to unfold the wonderful beauty of the cross and its atonement. He says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he tells us that the life of the believer in Romans 6 and 7 is a battle, but the Holy Spirit is pouring the love of Christ continually into our hearts so that we continue to grow and become more like Christ. 
And then he tells us in Romans chapter 8, no matter what it is that's happened in your life and no matter what it is that you do in life, if you have truly exercised faith in Christ and Christ even better has hold of you, even better than you've got a hold on him, here's the glory of the gospel. No one can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I don't care if it's powers or principalities or it's life or in death. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And no wonder by Romans 11, Paul is singing. He's writing poetry. Oh, the depths, the wonders and the mysteries of the judgments of God. How astonishing and inscrutable are your ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's your 11 chapters of Romans. Paul unfolding the love of God in detail, his own heart being raptured with that love, leading him from doctrine into doxology. And then as Paul always does in his letters, he makes a pivot in chapter 12. Therefore, in light of everything, in light of the doctrine, in light of the praise, in light of the doxology, I now have directives. How then should we live? Therefore, live as a living sacrifice acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this life, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he begins to challenge these Roman believers to live in light of the love that they've received. So it's no surprising. The whole book has been talking about the love of God. And when he comes to the marks of a true Christian in verse 9, where does he begin? Love. Let love be genuine. Now that's really where we're camping out this morning. Because we've got plenty to talk about in just those four words. Believe it or not, the first two verses have five commands in them. So they deserve our attention, and they're all related, and they're all under the banner of love. Everything is under the banner of this glorious picture of love. And he says, let love be genuine. He qualifies it for us, leading us to understand that the distinguishing mark of the Christian life, the first thing he wants to tell us that we are to be marked by is love. And not just any love, a genuine love. What kind of love is genuine love? It's the love that Christ has poured into your hearts. We are to love each other with the love that Christ has loved us. That's what genuine love is. It's loving each other with the love by which we have been loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the depth of genuine love really is. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus tells us. John chapter 13, some of the final words he speaks to his disciples In that last supper, as he wraps that towel around his waist, he gets the basin and the water, and he washes his disciples' feet. He gives them a glorious picture of what it means to live a life laying down love for one another. And then he says to them in verse 34, As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. So if you were wondering how you are to love, you are to love as you've been loved. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has spent now 11 chapters talking about that glorious gospel love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, let that love be so shot through in you. Let you be so full of that love. Let you be so transformed by that love. Let your will be so resolved in that love that that love becomes the distinctive and characteristic mark of what it means for you to live the Christian life. That's what the family of God is supposed to be marked by, the love of Jesus pouring out in us and into the lives of one another. Let love 
be genuine. We just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that same emphasis, didn't we? In many ways, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 are a pattern after what it is we see Paul follow here in Romans. He talks about spiritual gifts and then he talks about love. And he says, love is the greater gift. Some of you are speaking in tongues. Some of you are prophesying. Others of you have gifts of mercy and it helps. But I'm telling you, the greatest thing is the gift of love. And so as we consider... The fact that we are nothing without the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our only hope, what has been given to us. It makes complete sense that we would then hold on to, cling to that love, and we would begin to manifest that love because we've received it in such great manner. Now, as Paul says here in verse 9, he shows he's a great student of the human predicament by this command because he says, let love be genuine. And he means to indicate that it's possible to look like you're loving when you're not. He knows that there is a kind of love or a quality of love or an appearance of love that's not love. And so he wants them not to have a love that looks like love that's not love. He wants them to have a love that looks like love that is love. Because it's flowing out of the genuineness of the love that they've received in Christ. And there is a heart that's behind the action and the action that's tied to the heart so that the whole of the being is filled with genuine love. Now, when you hear the word genuine, you probably think of synonyms like sincere. The word is sometimes translated as sincere or real. We sometimes refer to our community and our Cornerstone Way vision and document. We'll talk about the community that we're pursuing as a real community. We mean for it to be a genuine one, not a, not a faking community, not a community full of personas or projections, but a community that's real, a community that's living, that's vital, vibrant. That has the carryover of this language of genuine. But I think what's interesting about this language is it's not stated in the positive the way it's translated here. We're going to talk about the positive next week when we get more into the showing honor and the serving that comes in verses 10 and 11, the overflow of love in its actionables. The language is actually in the negative. The New American Standard Version actually says it right in its literal translation. It says, let us love without hypocrisy. Let us love without hypocrisy. Now, the reason I say that's in the negative is genuine is something we look at positively. Love positively. He says, I want you to love without hypocrisy. He's meaning to say, here's, here's the enemy of love, hypocrisy. I want you to love without that. I want you to love without hypocrisy. Now, the language is actually qu quite interesting. It's a compound word in the Greek, that word genuine. The two words actually mean to under-explain which may seem really odd. The word for hypocrisy to mean under-explained, but if you can think of it this way, it's to have an explanation that's underneath things and concealed. So if you can think of it this way, there is the actions of love that we do, and then there are the stated explanations for why we do them, and then there are the real explanations that only our heart knows. There's the underneath explanation or the under explain that there are motivations or drives for the things that we do that often are not stated 
nor do they appear on the outside to be our motivations. But really, if our heart was known, they're known. The language of the KJV is that they are dissimulated. That means they are concealed. We're acting with a kind of pretense. We look like we care. We're acting like we care. We say that we care, but our heart being known is we're actually focused on something else, ourselves. It's a love that's not really love. In other words, it's, it's the kind of love we see with Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice with Jane Austen. Yes, he is a minister of the gospel. Sadly, all of her ministers are basically buffoons, if you read her novels. She didn't care much for our type, I guess, but... The fact of the matter, she was taking some commentary on what was often the religious performances of the 18th century, where religious actions of, of pandering to the care, social niceties of pastoral ministry is part of what was the subverted quality of its power and strength. And as we see with Mr. Collins, with his folly and his foolishness, he saddles up to people to make them feel warm and fuzzy, but he really has his eye on their, their wallet or their pocketbook. Or he really has their eye on some other thing. He's loving them as a way to love himself. He's a hypocrite. Underneath the explanation is, or the motive is, a loving of another in order to love self. That division between what we see or do and what we actually are. I was listening, I was on vacation this last week for several days and began re-listening because I haven't read it in many years and didn't have time to read it but wanted to listen on my drive to uh, Jane Eyre's, that wonderful novel by Charlotte Bronte and I had read it in, in years, I was listening to it and Mr. Brocklehurst, one of, the, one of the lead characters, cares for Jane and the other, apparently cares for Jane and the other young ladies who are in the institution that he is supposed to be educating them and taking care of them. And of course he doesn't. He actually doesn't give them what they need. They live in poverty. And, and all the time he talks about the importance of, um, of challenges and trials to make you who it is that you are. That being poor, you have to exercise more will and you have to rise above it. And I'm actually doing you a favor by not giving you things and spoiling you so that you become entitled, which in fact, he's just depriving them. And he and his family live in a luxurious home on another part of town. While he waxes eloquently about the ethics of living in poverty. Hypocrisy. There's an explanation underneath the explanation. There's a real motivation that gets to the heart of things. That's what's being described here. It's what Jesus attacks probably more vehemently than anything else we see in all of the Gospels. If you want to go to some of the strongest passages where Jesus is inciting judgments and condemnations, usually on religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, he is usually attacking them on the grounds of hypocrisy. I want you to think of Matthew 15, 7. Maybe one of the most well-known of Jesus' comments on hypocrisy. He says to the scribes and Pharisees, You hypocrites, well did the prophet Isaiah say of you, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They mouth the words of worship. They sing, Come Christians, join to sing. They sing, oh, deep, deep is the love of Jesus. They even close their eyes when they sing it. 
but their heart is far from me. Their heart is nowhere near me. Notice the duplicity that's in the context of that. You honor me in one way, displaying from the outside, but your heart is somewhere else. There's an external and an internal division. He makes a similar point in Matthew 23, verse 25. In fact, he makes it in several verses in Matthew 23, but listen to where he gets to really the heart of the issue of hypocrisy. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that you may that the outside also may be clean. So notice their interest. Their interest is on getting the outside pristine, looking well, there are two qualities that you see that are driving through these passages. The first is a hypocrite is someone who is absolutely consumed with appearance. Consumed with appearance. He says, you hypocrites, you're so interested in the outside of the cup. Later he'll say, you're like whitewashed tombs. You, you make things look pretty on the outside, but the reality is they're all messed up and broken and dirtied on the inside. And you're acting like all things are together when in fact all things are falling apart. You're utterly consumed with a shiny exterior. You want it all to be about face. And as you can see underneath that longing, that appearing to look well, to act like things are together when things are not really together, what we constantly see with these Pharisees and scribes is they make up commands in order to make themselves look good in the eyes of others. They come bringing their mint and their cumin and their herbs and they tithe them and they're real fastidious about all the details. And Jesus says, but behind the scenes, you're throwing away faith and justice and love, the big commands of the Lord. And you're focusing on the minutia that you think you could control and look like you've met all the requirements while looking down your noses at other people. You ultimately, hypocrites want a law that they can control. They want a quota that they can get to in order that they might be able to tout that they've arrived, they've made it, they've done what is necessary. Because ultimately, their fascination with appearance is because of a deep insecurity regarding acceptance. A deep insecurity regarding acceptance. You see, that's really what's underneath the focus on the appearance is an interest in being a, a need for approval or acceptance. They're desperate for it. They want to hear the attaboy. They want to get the slap on the back. They want to hear the crowd applause. They want to find someone catching them doing good more than do good. They are more interested in looking righteous than being righteous. Their focus is not on the thing or the love of the thing. It's on how they can use the thing to get what it is they want to get out of it. Hopefully you can see how subtle the way hypocrisy works and how dangerous it is. It's why Dante in the, his famous Inferno uh, talked about uh, hypocrisy and he placed it in the eighth circle of hell. Way down deep. 
uh, right next to that ninth circle where he puts frauds. Counterfeiters, seducers, flatterers, and hypocrites are on that eighth circle. And he says the reason for why that's the case is because they're actually using the appearance of something good in order to do evil. It's not just doing evil. It's worse than that. It's taking good to do evil. It's more deceptive. It's more deceitful. It's more manipulative. He has more hope for the drunkard and the harlot than the hypocrite. Because the hypocrite has gotten savvy about his wickedness. He's now shrewd. He knows how to be bad while looking good doing it. He knows how to use others in order to get his or her own benefit. This is a darkness that if it begins to overtake a community, you can imagine how eroding it is to the intimacy, the joy, and the relationships within the life of the family of God. That's where Paul is driving here in Romans chapter 12. He's he's interested in the life of the church. How is the church going to survive? There's more injury that is done with the hypocrisy within the body of Christ than maybe any other thing. Think of the reason for why that happens. I want you to just survey your own life for a second. Many of you have been in the church for a long time, but maybe even outside the church, people who you, you would understand to have loved you, cared for you, saddled up close to you, did things for you, as far as you knew, they loved you, and then they turned around and they stabbed you in the back with not even a tear. They got what they needed from you and then they dropped you like a hot potato. And they were gone. Off to someone else. They had used up the resource. And they're beginning to move on to someone else. They want to come to another community that they can appear good in. They are like spiritual hucksters. Constantly swindling people out of their trust. And out of what they can get from them. The approval that they can suck from them. They're like confidence men who who come ready to sell you. They're like spiritual telemarketers. No offense to the telemarketers in here. There are any in here. But I just know that when I answer my cell phone and they go, this is Mr. Sheridan, I go, oh, no. Are you having a good day? You don't care about my day. You care about my money. Now, that response from me comes from a place of where? Distrust from being years of a kind of fake niceness in order to get to something. We are a people who are advertised to death, which creates a context culturally where we trust no one. We shouldn't, we feel, trust anyone. And if we do trust someone, then it's our own fault for not being wise. We've become naive. Well, you can imagine if distrust becomes actually the currency of relationship within the body of Christ. Are you going to ask people to pray for you? Are you going to ask for help if you really need it? How about if you're struggling with a, with a sin that you need help in conquering? How about if your marriage is falling apart? Your child is rebelling and you don't know how to get help, but you don't want anybody to know. All of that's built on trust. It's built on genuine love. We've got to keep a lid on it. Because what if that stuff gets out? It might be used against me. I'm not sure that I can trust the people in this room. 
with what's going on in my life. I'm not sure they're genuine. So many of us have been shaped by those bad experiences that we've had in the past or maybe even in the, the, the recent past that we don't want to give our lives over anymore. We are we're going to be safe and protected and completely unloving. We've opted for the path of least resistance, which in fact leads to our own destruction. You can remain safe and unloved, or you can be vulnerable and loved. But those are the two options. And that vulnerability and love only comes when there is a genuineness in that love that's been engendered in a deep trust. You see, when you've received that love from the Lord Jesus Christ, you've begun to experience it in your own life. Then you can begin to give it to others. But as soon as that hurt begins to happen and reshape and wire the way that we interact, we become guarded. And in that guard, we get worse. We don't grow into the community of the life of the family of God. And we don't grow into the people that God has called us to be. Evaluate your own heart with regards to hypocrisy. I wrote down five questions this week that were good for my own heart to ponder. And I just think they may be helpful for you as well. Nate, do you only do enough to be seen as righteous, but neglect those things that would require greater sacrifice and little recognition? Nate, do you get mad when you don't receive the recognition you think you deserve? Do you get jealous when someone seems to be receiving the recognition that you think you deserve? Are you more generous and forgiving to yourself with your sins than you are towards others in those same sins? Do you relate and to and love others without a hidden agenda? I wish I could answer all of those cleanly and purely before you. I can't. In voicing those questions, every time I voice them, there's a sinking feeling of conviction. To recognize it in some way, shape, and form, each of those questions get to that separation of hypocrisy that's here in my own heart. Let love be genuine, though, Paul says. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, I, I think one of the things to recognize is that there are, there, if we could put it this way, two types of hypocrites, maybe two types of hypocrites in this room right now. And there are only two types of hypocrites. We're all in the hypocrite category, in case you're wondering. You're in one of these two categories. You're in the hardened hypocrite category, which means right now you don't think you're a hypocrite, which means you're a terrible hypocrite. <laughs> or you're in the category of the hypocrite who knows they're a hypocrite, and you're slayed by it, and you're convicted by it, and you desperately want to overcome it by God's grace. That means one of us is a, is a hypocrite who doesn't know he's ever a hypocrite, and right now needs the Holy Spirit to break in clearly and powerfully to bring change and light. Notice that Jesus says, Oh, you hypocrites, blind Pharisees. That's what he says. You're deceived. You can't see yourself for who you are. 
And then there are many of us in this room who are hypocrites, but we're struggling with our hypocrisy. We're battling it. We hate it. It disgusts us. You see, that's part of what verse 9 is all about when he says, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. You see, when you start seeing the hypocrisy in your life, it sickens you. It sickens you because you begin to realize even when you've done the best possible things that you've done, you have found that sin is abiding right there in the center of your heart. And it's not been what you've done so much of the time. It's the reasons for why you've done it. Underneath, there's been an explanation. And it wasn't pretty. Now, the question is, which category are you in? Are you actually struggling with your hypocrisy or are you in some sense made friends with it? And maybe you're so hardened in it, you don't even see it. And maybe rehearsing those questions before the Lord that I rehearsed a second ago with you would be something that would nourish your own heart to reawaken you to the grievousness of what it means to steal from God the glory that he is rightfully due and to turn the good things that he has given into platforms for yourself. All because you're desperate and needy for approval and you're insecure about who it is that you are. The only way to begin to struggle with this kind of hypocrisy is to come back daily to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, hypocrisy works completely opposite as the gospel. I want you to see it. Hypocrisy is so concerned with appearance, right? It wants everything to look good on the outside, though at home, behind closed doors, inside your own head and heart, it is a train wreck. That's hypocrisy. Clean up on the outside. The inside looks terrible. Appearance, got to get everything cleaned up. Why? In order to be approved. In order to be accepted. Some, some of it may be acceptance in our own minds. In order to be the people we've always dreamed we were. Or, or to be accepted in a community. Or, or among a people. Or to gain some title or recognition. Whatever it is. But it's getting things to appear right in order to gain the approvals you want. You know, what, you know how the gospel works? In Christ, in the midst of your totally wrecked life, that is absolutely a dumpster fire. You are embraced and loved and approved in Christ. All of his righteousness is credited to your account. All your sins are forgiven. Everything you've ever thought, every careless word you've ever said, every secret deed that is not known, completely expunged. And white as snow in the righteousness of Christ. Fully approved, which makes you absolutely beautiful in appearance. Absolutely beautiful in appearance. Do you see, if you're trying to get your act together to get approved, you've completely reversed the gospel. Because in the gospel, you've been approved in Christ, and now you're absolutely beautiful in his righteousness. You have completely turned the whole system of gospel doctrine on its head. And you will never be able to escape until you come out of hiding. And you learn that from this hypocrisy, there is a love that is genuine. And the love that is genuine is Jesus's love for you. That he demonstrated his own love towards you in that while you were yet a sinner, ugly, gross, condemned, the worst possible vision of a person imaginable, while that was you, he died for you. He poured out his love upon you. 
And he's given you all of his righteousness and has made you beautiful in appearance. Do you see, we have to be hypocrites if we don't believe the gospel is true. Because we'll be insecure in our persons, never quite measuring up, needing to do more to be able to be accepted. And that rhythm tells me you have not yet drunk in deeply the gospel. Because there is nothing that you can do to make yourself beautiful, to get the approval that you so desperately long. It is only in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ where that happens. Now, for a moment, in the flash of this moment in this message, sit in the glory of that and the confidence of that place and think of the people who you're trying to impress. Think of the mind that continues to condemn you with lies of shame. Think of, think of the work righteousness that you're constantly living in day by day, which is why your days are up and down, depending on whether they were good or bad. And now for a moment, sit in the steady place of the love and acceptance and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ that is fully yours in Christ and realize that hypocrisy doesn't stand a chance against such security doesn't stand as chance. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Your sin Saturday night? No, not a chance. Your sin tomorrow that you haven't committed yet? Not a chance. That is secure, my friends. That is an identity that is in Jesus that makes you long to become one who can give the kind of love you've received from him. He is not hanging over you, ready to smash you. His banner over you is love. His banner over you is love. From his love, love one another. I want to challenge you. Following the service today, you probably have a routine. You know, get the kids and clean up the pew, pick up the goldfish, you know, whatever it is. I want you to pause and the people around you who you're not sure yet you're going to talk to after the service, I want you to look at them and I want you to talk to them. And I want you to extend to them the genuine love by which you've been loved. Which means that as you talk to them, you're not worried about you. You're not worried about how you look. You're not worried if you make conversation. You're not anxious about what subject's going to come up. You're not worried about dinner. You're just, you're just treating them like they're made in the image of God, probably needy of fellowship, need to be encouraged in Christ's love, and that His Spirit dwells within them and has right now stirred them up in the gospel right alongside you. And you have an opportunity to not wait but to do it immediately upon the benediction. For a moment, practice loving genuinely. Practice it. And as we move through the service, pray towards it. That the Lord would give you increasing genuineness in your love long after you exit the doors in the back. That we might be a people who love in the way that we've been loved. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would do that. That that little simple instruction 
wouldn't be just cute, but it'd be real. And that a moment of saying yes to the call of being a genuinely loving community might spill over into a Monday and a Tuesday and might begin to change the fabric of the way that we relate. Oh, Lord, would you do that? Would you so change us as your people that the watching world would find it unmistakable that that congregation is marked and filled with the love of Jesus? Make it unmistakable. Whatever fruit needs to be born for your glory. Lord, not for us, please. Oh, we're going to have a tendency to turn this on us. Please keep us from it. In fact, Lord, make us fail if we would do that. But Lord, if in the success of it, it would give glory to the name of Jesus. Father, don't stop short of that. Do whatever it is you need to do with our hearts to make that happen in this fellowship, in the churches surrounding us, in the community of Franklin. May the name and the love of Jesus Christ be the distinguishing mark of who we are. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.